Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Podcast number 29. I'm Cam Connor along with my son Chris. Welcome back, everyone. So we had kind of an extended break. We got sick. Daddy were traveling lots, but we now have found time to record another episode. First of all, we want to thank everyone over the last couple of months who have sent reviews in, especially to iTunes. We read them. I know you post them, Dad, and they're really nice. Hopefully they're honest. Um, we appreciate all the compliments. Right, Dad? No, I think that's uh, that keeps me going when I see some positive news like that. And, you know, if I got people say, hey, I hate this, and there's not much point to me keeping up with this, uh, these podcasts. But, again, when you see that people are listening and uh, some people uh, enjoy what Chris and I have to say and our thoughts, uh, that's very positive for us. And thank you for that. So before we get into today's topic, which is a really interesting one, and basically it's do you think that the Edmonton Oilers are wasting Connor McDavid's talents, or to flip that is, are, are they hurting his career by him staying and playing on a team that's not making the playoffs, and they recently fired their GM and previously their coach, so that will be near the end of the episode. We have a bunch of questions over the past couple of months that uh, we're going to do some house housekeeping. We're going to answer those questions. Before we do, we just wanted to say you can always contact Dad on Twitter at CamConnorNHL. Send us an email at viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and you just started Instagram, so you can find us a whole bunch of places. We want to hear from you. So I guess we'll go into some questions. So the first one is from Kyle and he said, I have recently started listening to your podcast, which is great. It's good to hear that people are finding us somehow. Um, And I love hearing the awesome stories you have shared. Uh, I'm from Indianapolis and have been a hockey fan all my life. I played for a number of years and have been to countless games, but I am too young to have seen a WHA game when the racers were in town. My question for you is, did you ever play in Indianapolis against the Racers? And if so, what were some memories you have of playing there? Thanks so much for sharing your hockey journey with everyone. Well, I did play against the Racers in the WHA. Going to Indianapolis, you know, it reminds me a lot of where I grew up in Winnipeg. You know, there's it's an older city, and uh, when you stay right downtown, near the Market Square Arena, it's pretty quiet down there, so... First few times I went in there, I, I really didn't know what to think of Indianapolis. But I got to say, in all honesty, when people ask me, what do you think of this city? What do you think of that city? I really believe, you know, it's the people that you meet in the various cities will determine, at least for me, what I think of that city. So when I think of Indianapolis, I have met some really wonderful people out of Indianapolis and when I think of that city, I think of nothing but positives. And, you know, to answer your question, you know, I really like Indianapolis. I, I can honestly say that. And when I think of that city, there's probably three or four things that pop in my head. I've talked about two of them in the past. One 
is when I played with Phoenix Roadrunners and we traveled all day long. There's no straight A to B from Phoenix to Indianapolis. We had to hit probably another two different airports. And by the time we got in, we left early in the morning. We got in like to our hotel at 5. And we had to uh, leave at 5.15 to go to Market Square Arena. And as we were on our way to the arena, we saw guys in the team coming back. And the bottom line is, is whatever airlines we flew, they forgot our equipment on the tarmac. If you can believe that. And we were dragging our butts, walking to the rink. And we said, where are we going to find the energy after hanging around airports all day long and playing the night before? You don't sleep. After you play a game, you go over the game in your own mind when you're laying in bed. Geez, why didn't I shoot instead of pass? Or why didn't I pass? Or why didn't I fight that guy? Or why did I fight that guy? You know, and you just can't sleep. You replay that game over and over. So it's a long day when you're just nothing but airports and on the airplane. And so walking there and the game was canceled. It's just amazing how you kind of find out some of that is mental. Because as soon as we said, we're not playing. You're kidding me. Well, let's go to the bar. And all the energy came back. Do you want to say why it was canceled? Well, again, I said that uh, they left the gear and the tarmac in Phoenix. So when we got there, we had no equipment to put on. And I, all I can say is that airlines, I'm sure they got sued for a lot of money. Everything from, you know, the per diem that we get to the flights and the tickets to the hotel rooms to having to pay for the arena, the tickets. Like, you could go on and on. It cost somebody a lot of money to cancel that game. And then to rebook it again, too. So that's one. The other one I've mentioned before, I was sitting downtown the morning of the game we got in early and i was having breakfast by myself and a guy next door was robbing the bank and the cops kind of got wind of it and they forced this guy out of the bank and he took the bank manager hostage and he had a shotgun to this guy's head and as i remember it it appeared to me because he walked if the window that i was sitting at if it was open i could have tapped the guy on the shoulder i mean that's how close he was um, he had, it appeared to me, as I, if I remember correctly, he had this coat hanger around the guy's neck, which was kind of wrapped around the trigger, not the trigger, maybe his trigger finger. And this guy was walking very slowly past, and uh, he was holding this, I think he was the bank manager hostage. So I saw that on the news that night. So that's something I'll never forget. Another thing is, I remember when we were in Indianapolis, we had a game, and after the game, because we haven't eaten since 12, 1230, we're hungry, so three or four of us, let's see, one, two, three of us decided to go. We asked the cabbie, hey, where's a good spot to eat? He told us, and sure enough, you know, it's like 30 bucks in the cab to get there, and we go inside, and wouldn't you know, the other team is sitting in there. Back in my day, it's, and I really believe, even if you know someone on the other team, especially during the game, you shouldn't be talking to the opposition at all. And so, I come from the Gordie Howe era, back when they're the other team, and uh, they're not on your team, and they're the enemy. And that's maybe not the right way to think about it, but I was in line with Gordie on that thing. And so, me and the other two guys, we walked into the bar and we saw them there. We said, we're not staying here. We went back outside in the rain to wait for a cab to come again. And we saw this guy breaking into a pickup truck as we were waiting. 
And so we we really weren't going to do too much, but we just went, hey, what are you doing? Just tried to scare the guy. Well, he got scared. He ran around the corner, but he came back with like six or seven guys. I So they walked up to us and they kind of got us surrounded in the parking lot. And uh, they were kind of chirping us. And uh, I could fight. And the other guy's name was John Shella. He knew how to fight. And there was one other fellow whose name I won't mention who did not know how to fight. And they formed a circle around us. So Larry and I got back to back. Figured we're going to have to fight our way out of this thing. And then the cap pulled up. And the other fella, he was so afraid, he broke through those guys and jumped in the cab and locked the doors. And so it was just Larry and I, excuse me, John and I left to fight these, uh, you know, five, six guys, whatever. And as it worked out, these guys just tripped us and they allowed us to get into the cab. But uh, I always remember that with Indianapolis, too. But overall, again, it was, uh, I, I liked the city because I met some really nice people there. And I've never been back, but I would sure love to go back one. So we have a question from Stephen, and he writes, I would like to know your opinion on the Hurricanes celebration after a home victory. As a Hurricanes fan, I thoroughly enjoy seeing the players celebrate with the fans. I see them less as millionaires that don't care whether they win or lose, and more as a team that is working hard to succeed and are having fun. Thank you. P.S. Your honesty is very refreshing. Speaking of honesty, I got to say, when you live in Canada, it doesn't matter if you're Toronto or Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver. You only get to see whatever games are shown on TV. All the Edmonton games, whoever they play on the road, that's showing. And so I haven't seen the Hurricanes at all or minimal this year. And to talk about how they celebrate I can only imagine what they're doing, but I mean, if if you're saying positive things about it, about the way they celebrate, I can honestly say, players, they love their fans, they appreciate it. Even if you're chirping and you're upset at them because they're losing, you know, you pay your money, they know that, and, and it comes with the territory. But if these players are interacting in a positive way with the fans, with the young children there, that's the most important thing then they're representing the game of hockey very well. And my hat's off to the Hurricanes players. And I'm sure the management encourages it. So keep it up, guys. You represent us in the game of hockey very well. And I'm going to interject and ask a couple of my own questions. So I know today you have, you found a letter from, I think, 1976 or 1977 uh, where you were told that you would be joining the WHA All-Star team. So you posted that to Twitter. So if anyone wants to see that, take a look. But I wanted to ask you, since uh, it's the All-Star weekend, what it felt like to join uh, or to play in the All-Star game. And did you expect it? And how did it turn out? I think if you are somebody with a lot more ability than I had, you might expect to be on the all-star team every year. For myself, I was never, even in junior, for me, I never worried if there were scouts at the game. I just tried to do my best every single game. And I didn't even think, truly, not very often about even getting drafted. I just wanted to do the best I can. And so I made the all-star team my third year in the World Hockey. So the first year, 
And the second year, I played for a guy named Sandy Huckle. I've mentioned that before. He wasn't one of my fans, and he told me before the season even started, even at training camp the first year, that he's going to try to send me down. I don't really know what I did to get him to feel that way about me. So the first year playing minimal, I got nine goals and 18 assists. The next year playing minimal, I got 18 goals and I don't remember how many assists. The next year I went to to Houston Arrows, and that's when I played with Gordie Howe and uh, Mark and Marty and some of the other great hockey players. And I had a coach that he co- he knew how to coach me. And, he, you know, it wasn't even me. He was positive with all the players, and uh, nobody took advantage of Bill Deneen. He always patted me on the back and always made me feel like I was somebody important on that hockey team. When I played my first game, it was just like me back in junior. I didn't think about just like Sandy Huckle told us, just go up and down your wing, and unless you got a 90% chance of getting that puck, stay on the boards and pick up your man. Like, that is such an uncreative way to play hockey. So when I got to Houston, he said, well, just do what you got to do out there. So I was playing from the heart, and I didn't think about how to play the game of hockey. You play it the way you, you play it the way that you think it should be played. And he left me alone. And that year, I went from, like I said, 9 goals, 18 goals, to 35 goals. And I knew I was having a good season. I was being put on the power play, a little bit of penalty killing, my regular shift. He gave me responsibility. And for myself, that is how I get motivated, is when I can see somebody really trusts me, and he's letting me out there in the last minute or two of the game, or a power play that's important. I just grow on that, and I don't want to let anybody down, so I try even harder. And so that year, I was having a good year, but I never even thought about the All-Star Game. And then all of a sudden, I got a notice that I've been selected to join the All-Star Team. And what an honor that is, because you never know what the future holds. I hope that I would just continue getting better and better every year and maybe make another All-Star Team. As it worked out, you know, that was the only All-Star Team I made. It was really good for me to, to travel. It was at Hartford that year, the All-Star Game. And, you know, you got to meet uh, some guys that you're playing with that you've played against, but now you at least got to shake their hand. And a few of those guys, I remember I I got their autograph. I was so happy that I I got to meet them. I remember going out and playing, and I told myself, okay, I'm going to be MVP this game. I'm going to do it. But there's so many, there's like four or five lines. And so you don't get much ice time at all. And so... As it worked out, I think I played a pretty good game. I, I, I don't think I got any goals, but, you know, I, I know that they knew I was out there. So it was an honor to play in the world hockey. would have been wonderful had I ever had the chance or the ability to get in an NHL All-Star game, but it wasn't to be. And so my second question is kind of uh, off topic, but it has to do a little bit with the stories of the mob and mafia that you've talked about, but I'm... I've started watching, and I think a lot of people have a new documentary on Ted Bundy, and he, his, uh, I guess his reign of terror was before, before me. So I don't know anything about him. Do you have any interesting stories, or have you read anything of? You're smirking, so <laughs> you have some. Well, you want me to talk about Ted Bundy? I don't know. If there's nothing to say, there's nothing to say. 
Well, I don't think Ted was a very good hockey player. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I actually saw the documentary. It's on TV right now. So, I mean, I've uh, I've read about Ted, Bund- Ted Bundy. And you can't judge a book by its cover. He is very articulate. He smiles. He, like they said, he would have made a great lawyer. But you just, some of those quiet guys, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And so the only thing I can say about Ted Bundy is, thank God I never ran into anybody like Ted Bundy. None of my buddies were like Ted Bundy. And uh, he was executed, and uh, he deserved to be executed. Okay, just thought maybe you had some kind of interesting tale no. during those times. No, I don't know any mobsters myself. Okay, so we have another question, uh, and this one's from Tara, or Tara. Uh, so she writes, Hi, Cam and Chris. I found your podcast a few months ago, and always am excited when a new episode is posted. I'm probably not the best hockey fan out there because I'm not team loyal. I just love the game and follow the sport and several players from across the league. I found the sport when I was a teenager, about a year after the Minnesota North Stars were moved to Dallas. Hockey was exciting and fascinating to me compared to football, which I'm not a fan of. Anyways, I love hearing your thoughts on current things and wanted to see if you guys would give your opinion on the Dallas Stars CEO rant that came out recently about Jamie Benn and Tyler Seguin. I'm not their biggest fan, but to me, they both seem to be pretty good players, and while their play hasn't been stellar this season, it's not been dull either. My other humble request would be to have more podcasts and stories. Well, I believe this was actually from last month, so sorry we're just getting to it now, so it's not as topical, but you are aware of the the CEO rant, so what are your thoughts? You know, I could see the CEO... You know, when you get upset, especially in a position of power, you cannot go to the media and start ranting and pointing fingers and cutting up the team members, especially these two individuals. I got to believe, and I do believe, I can only think of one guy that uh, I, I never thought he did his best when he had way more ability. So in all my years... You're going to have some bad games, and, and I know the fans always say, well, they're not even trying. I just can't even believe that there'd be players that don't try out there. I mean, I can't. Um, I only knew one guy that I could say out of all the players in my 10, 11 years playing that I could say, you know what, I agree with that. This guy doesn't even care. because He was in the minors. He was making what's called a one-way contract, and his future was secured dollars and cents-wise. But he didn't have any pride as to playing the best. So if he gets sent to the farm team, I know when I got sent to the farm team, it didn't even occur to me not to try because I was on a one-way contract. And I always... Sorry, I wanted to ask, does your pay change when you go to the farm team? Yeah, it depends if you're dealing from strength when you negotiate. So if you're somebody they really want, and you can get what's called a one-way contract where they say, okay, Cam, you get sent to our farm team which would be in the American Hockey League, will still pay you the same salary. Some guys that aren't dealing from strength, they have what is called a two- or three-way contract. So if you get sent from the NHL down a level to the American Hockey League, and I'll just make up some numbers. You know, if you were making the minimum of 650000 the odds are you don't have a lot of bargaining power. 
you may only get paid 80, which still it's a lot of money today, but it, compared to what you can make in the NHL, it's not a lot of money. You might make 50, 80,000 a year. And I know some guys that have got a two-way contract that they're making 175,000 in the minors. And some guys who really aren't dealing from strength have a three-way. So if they don't make the American League and they get sent down another level, then uh, they, they'll make even a fraction of that. So, again, when I got sent down, it didn't even occur to me not to try my best. And I remember George McPhee one day, the GM for Vegas, when we were on the farm team together, he said, I got to take my hat off to you, Cam, because I was fighting and doing, you know, everything I could to get back to the NHL. Um, he just said, he said, you know, you're on a one-way contract. He said, but you still try your best every game. And he gave me a pat on the back. And I, I really didn't even think about it up until then because I thought everybody tried their best, even if it was in the minors. So, you know, I thank you, George, for that because you didn't know it, but you, you encouraged me to keep trying hard and doing my best because I never put in my mind that I wouldn't get back to the NHL on a regular basis. Um, the dream came true when I got brought up by the Rangers uh, for a playoff game and uh, I got four goals I think it was in 10 games but they sat me on the bench for the first two and then I got a regular shift so I started doing well and they told me I was back on the team the next year but I ended up getting hurt at training camp that put me out of hockey for a long time. So we have two questions from the same person from Joyce and the, the first one's uh, a nice question and it's from her Twitter and she says that you've mentioned your 99-year-old father a few times. How is he doing? And what is his recipe for success? Well, thanks for asking about my father, Gord. And Gord lives in Winnipeg. And uh, he will be 99 this August. And my mother is 88 and will be 89 in September. And they both live in the same house we grew up in. You know, my dad is... a a talkative guy. He didn't tell me a heck of a lot growing up about himself. And I remember asking dad, hey dad, what do you do for a living? And my dad would say, what do you care? Oh, he would never tell me. And it's pretty crazy, but that's my dad. He never said too, too, too much. But as he's gotten older, I've, I've, I've discussed with him his longevity and I've observed in simplistic terms, like my dad retired at 58 years old, and he swam for 20 years every second day, faithfully, religiously, he'd go and he'd swim. So, you know, when he first started off, he would do, you know, two, three lengths, and he was up to doing 36 lengths in the pool. And so the secret for my father was moving, because I know gentlemen that have died in their 70s, They've retired, and uh, they've got very minimal activity going on in their life. When they go golfing, they take a cart. They didn't do any chores around the house. My father, he so when he stopped swimming, he got into a walking. He'd go for walks probably every day. And I know I'd come visit him in Winnipeg, and I'd look forward to maybe in the winter going for a walk with my father. Because it's icy and slippery, and I'd just like to be there to make sure he didn't fall. Uh, but he'd just go on his own. It'd be the coldest day. And I'd see him coming in the back door. His nose is running. He's got frost on his eyelids. And that didn't deter him. He'd go out even on the coldest days. Because he just knows my dad wants to live. I know he does. 
and he does what he has to do to live. And so he moves, moves. He's outside raking. He's got a garden that he tends. He's, he, he, he works on, uh, the, the, he puts up Christmas lights. He moves and he, he doesn't sit still. And what's interesting about him that you haven't mentioned is that he does all this still with no help. There's no nurse that comes in. No. They're completely independent. I think they pay for people to shovel their driveway. But everything else, wasn't he on the roof, like, recently? <laughs> yeah, he'd be right up there doing, you know, on the ladder, doing something in the eaves trough. He didn't actually get up onto the roof because uh, that'd be goofy. But uh, I, I got to take my hat off to him. He's very independent. He's up and down those stairs every day, getting stuff from the basement and bringing it up. That, that if there's a secret... And I don't really think it's a secret. It's just something you got to do. You can't talk about it. So he goes out and he walks. And now he fell a couple of years, three, four years ago, broke his hip. And usually that's the beginning of the end. So he could not handle being in a hospital. He was like a lion being caged. And he said, when am I getting out of here? They said, when you can go up and down these steps, then you can go. Uh, he worked every day, every day to be able to go up and down. And finally, he was able to do it. So they sent him home and they said, do these exercises. He went home and he did those exercises and more. And uh, even today, at his age, I asked him last time I was in Winnipeg, Dad, could you feel that hip? He goes, no, I don't, I don't even know I had the, you know, his hip replacement, he said, because he does what he has to do and he doesn't cut corners. And, uh, you know, he's a real inspiration for me when I don't feel like doing something. I get up and I do it and I move just because I know that's the right thing to do. So thank you very much for asking about my dad. God bless him. He's doing very well right now. And I feel confident that he should be able to get to 99. So I know on Twitter a couple of days ago, you had mentioned that you were at an Oilers game and you took note of how I think you wrote the goalie didn't. Uh, leave the crease like didn't challenge the player so do you want to talk a little bit about how goalie styles have changed over the years i'm not saying i know everything about being a goaltender i'm not saying i watch as many games as you know somebody who's with the team themselves but there's a few things that i've noticed so i know that the oilers goalie he's six foot eight and uh he's from finland He's a good goalie. He, he covers a lot of the net. But when I see him, when a shooter's coming in, and this isn't every time, but I've seen some guys in the slot, and he's got his butt in the net. He's back a little too far, which means there's some openings. When, you're, when you don't cut that angle off, it makes it a little easier to score. And so when I looked at the other end, at Detroit's goalie the other night, he was at the top of his circle. Somebody on the orders was in the slot coming for a shot. He didn't stay in the net. He challenged him. He went right out and challenged him. So one of the observations just that, you know, with the top goalies, they especially like even you look at Fleury for Vegas. He's not a big goalie by today's standards. But he's out challenging. He's saying, you got to beat me with a good shot. And he's quick enough. That if he comes out to challenge you and you have the room to maybe deke, he's quick enough to move with you. And so that was just one thing I was, you know, telling my son Chris. 
is that I, 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 it was my observation that I thought that the goalie should be a little higher up in his crease because, you know, he, he's a big goalie. It's going to be like shooting at a piece of plywood. It's just not much to, to see out there. So, but the other thing really what I want to talk about is I don't understand this today that the goalies, and our day, you get anywhere near the goalie, you want to put a move, and you're a little too close, poke check. Oh, I can't tell you how many times you get too close, poke check. And those goalies were good at shooting that stick out of nowhere, knocking the puck off your stick, or tripping you, nothing else. And so when I look today and I see these guys skate right across in front of the goalie, and the goalie keeps your stick on the ice and just kind of follows them, and I don't understand why... The goalies don't do more poke checking today. Um, and if you're a goalie out there and you've got a, an explanation, I'd love to hear. I mean, I'd like to learn something, but I just don't understand. When you, you're two or three feet from that goal, bang, you push that stick out, there goes the puck. And that's the end of the threat. So that was really what I wanted to talk about was why don't goalies poke check anymore? I, I just, it's rare that I see somebody poke check. And when they have, it's been effective. So, that uh, that was all I wanted to say about goaltending and how it's changed. It's mostly about the poke checker. So we have one question left, but I know before we hit uh, that question, I think you had a funny story about mom in Houston. Do you want, do well, you want to share that? Well, that, that is, it was kind of funny. So I was single my first three years um, up playing pro in the fourth year when I was with, in Houston. My neighbors, I bought a house, so my neighbors were... You know, just awesome people. And you knew that I was getting married my second year there. And so I came back to start the season with, with my wife, Sherilyn. And we'd go on the road in the world hockey for, honestly, got two to three weeks at a time. So we were gone for quite a bit. And so here she is. We grew up in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. She's by herself. She really hasn't had a chance to meet the other wives. And so we had uh, some kids, some some buddies that I went to high school with who had asked me if they could come down from Winnipeg and uh, they were, they were going to, you know, be in the area. Could they stay at my house for a little while? And I said, yeah, you can stay for a little while. As it worked out, they stayed for, I think, three months, those floaters. And I don't even, you know, I've never heard from them again, but uh, still. So when they, I was on the road the night that they arrived and they arrived at two or three in the morning and they had this van, an older van, and they said, well, we might as well park just right in front of Camp's house. And rather than knock on the door at this time of night or ring the bell, we'll just go to sleep and get up in the morning and then do it, knock on the door. So they were, you know, in their van and they were in the front seats and they pushed their, the chair back a bit and uh, were trying to sleep. And one of the neighbors happened to notice that there was a strange vehicle in front of miles. And he knew that I was on the road, so he sent his 16-year-old boy out on the skateboard to go by it and have a peek in there and see what was going on. So he went and he looked and he'd come back towards that. There's two guys laying and, and sitting in the front seat sleeping. And then, <laughs> and then they looked at the license plate, and uh, so they were relaying the story to me, what they did. And, and so, so he said, yeah, we looked at the plate. And, it, and, it's, and the plate is from Manitoba. But being from Houston, I don't even think he knew where Manitoba or even knew the name. And he said, yeah, there was uh, some plates in front of your house from Manitoba. 
So I started laughing. I thought that was pretty funny. So I said, so what'd you do? He said, well, I sat my son back out there on the skateboard and uh, I stood in my front door and I had a 30-06 with a scope trained on these guys. And so my son, he uh, banged on the window and if there was any problems, he says, I was shooting right away. And so, so the kids explained, you know, in the vehicle who they were and why they were out there. So they passed the test. But uh, don't mess with the wrong people in Texas, people. That's all I got to say. So I knew my wife was protected when I, when I was on the road. So that, that's, that was kind of funny to me. So the last question we have is the second one from Joyce. And she wrote, um, and we saved, or I saved this for last because it kind of connects to Connor McDavid. And she asks, what is the recipe for success for team culture from a management aspect? I find it interesting that teams like Winnipeg and Calgary can successfully rebuild, but the Oilers can't, even with a state-of-the-art arena and training facility. Well, Chris, I got to tell you, that is a hard, hard question to answer. You know, the Oilers have not made the playoffs 11 out of 12 years, and you get all the reporters in Edmonton telling the management, the fans, what is wrong with the team? What is wrong with the team? And it's just somebody offering their two cents. I mean, they get paid to ask these questions and to come up with answers. There, there is no easy answer. You know, I could say if I, if I hung around with, the, with all the players and I knew what Winnipeg's environment and Calgary's environment was like, but I, I, I could say this. Any of the teams that I played for that have been good hockey teams and, and you make the playoffs every year, we were tight individuals. If you go back to the Oilers of the 80s where they had unbelievable firepower, those guys, and it was by Glenn Sather, he encouraged the players to hang out together. So even after practice at Edmonton, I know Samenx and I and some of the other guys, we used to go out for steak sandwiches every day. That's just what we did. We hung together. And I've told stories already in the past podcast about Montreal. Every day, this is not exaggerated, every day we'd have minimum 15 guys hanging together. Whether it was going to a restaurant or going for some beer. And even if you didn't drink, you got to come along. And we bonded as, and we played as one. And then with the Rangers, and I mentioned this before, we hadn't won the cup in 55 years at the time. And when we'd say, let's go out and have a sandwich or have a beer together, you might get three to four guys. And we played the same way, you know, when we got on the ice. We played as 20 individuals rather than as a team. And so I've been told, but I don't know how true it is, I really don't, that the orders, they don't really hang together. It's more of a business now when they do their thing at the rink and their buddy buddies. But I truly, truly believe that if the guys just go their separate ways after practices, it's really hard to gel as a unit on the ice. And I saw those examples through the Rangers and through the Montreal Canadiens. So I think when you put their talent on paper, they're as strong as a lot of teams. Maybe they're one or two pieces of the puzzle away from being that top three team. But there's no reason that they shouldn't be. And, you know, they showed the other day, I think they've had eight coaches in the last 12 or 13 years. They've had five GMs. And then how many goalies 
So Dubnik was here, right? Couldn't make the team. He struggled. But yet he was playing in the All-Star game last night with another team. And then you you look at uh, Winnipeg's backup goalie. I think his name is Broussard. He couldn't make it here at all either. Goes to Winnipeg. They love him there. They love him. And so he's making the minimum right now, which is about six fifty. Um, you could bet he'll get a big raise um, after that. You look at Taylor Hall. Why did he come become MVP last season with New Jersey? But he he didn't ever. You never saw that talent. You saw it from time to time. He obviously was consistent with the New Jersey Devils. He did it game in and game out, which earned him that MVP. But why didn't he do it in Edmonton? And the only thing I can think of, and again, I'm sure every team works them hard, and so it's not a conditioning thing. And the only thing I can think of without really being there is that they just don't spend enough time together as a unit. Now, if you're one of the Oilers or you know better, you know what? I apologize from that, but from the outside looking in, that's the only thing I can think of. And you got a good scoop, so... Yeah, I'm not going to reveal. You're not going to say who I'm it is. I'm not going to reveal the scoop I got because I got somebody <laughs> that knows more than me that said that was the reason. And if so, I I I agree. And if I'm management, one of the things, okay, we're going on the road, and and then you look at slots. He'd take these guys golfing in the middle of the season. He would encourage and he'd pay for it. Listen, we're going to do it as a unit. And guys got to know each other, and uh, man, I tell you, you don't even know the difference it makes when, when you're having a good time, and you're working hard, and you've got pressures off you, and you care about the person beside you. It just seems to flow a lot better, and, and let's hope it's that simple. And I guess this does tie into our last topic, and our main topic is, is Connor McDavid's talent being wasted? You know, I saw an article in the paper the other day, and that was the question, right? If you're Connor McDavid... Just like your Gretzky, right? Once you're here and you get to know your teammates, there's always two or three guys that you're close with, and it's always fun in the dressing room. I don't think if you ask him, are you, are you wasting your time here? I think he believes that this team has got some good core players. I, I don't think he believes he's wasting his time, and neither neither do I. I think that this team has too many people that care, and they'll figure out exactly, it has to be pretty soon, what is the problem in Edmonton? They've done everything for the team from new rink to uh, first class. I mean, everything. So I don't think that Connor McDavid feels he's wasting his time here. I mean, you look at a guy way back in the day like Marcel Dion. How many years did he play? I'll pull it out of the air. 20? And he was a phenomenal player, always up there in the scoring championships. He didn't get a Stanley Cup. But he played on the same team for a long time. And I think Connor's happy in Edmonton, and that's the starting point. If he's not happy with management and the players around him, you know, he'll want out. You look at John Tavares. How long was with the Islanders? But, you know, the Islanders, I think, were making the playoffs a lot more than Edmonton was in that time frame. But he didn't want to stay there. You know, he he put in a lot of years with the Islanders. He wants a cup. So he went to Toronto, where they have a good hockey team, and he can, I think he's got 30 goals already. So there may come a time with Connor, he's, he's never going to ask for a trade, guarantee it. But I think if eight years goes by, his contract's up, and the Oilers have struggled and struggled and struggled year after year, 
I think only at that point would you see Connor McDavid say, you know what, I think I'm going to trade teams and I'm going to go to this powerhouse team because they got a good chance of winning. I think every player wants to win the Stanley Cup. That's what you fight for. That's what you work for every day in practice. You pay that price to be winners. And I think with Connor, he's, he'll be patient. He'll keep work, working. He won't complain. But at the end of the day, when his contract's up, then that will tell you how well they've done as a team. And Connor wants that Stanley Cup, no doubt about it. So at that point, he might consider going somewhere else, but not not in the short term for sure. Okay, well, I guess we'll we'll see what happens with Connor McDavid. So thanks for listening, everyone. And again, send us your emails, viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. And please uh, do a review for us. We really appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cam. Thank you.